Well, Easter Sunday, right? That's Resurrection Day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That took place on April 17th this year. Um, and for the past 50 days, the church around the world has celebrated the season of Easter. Um, up until today, we've had the celebratory white tablecloth kind of representing the, the season of Easter. We've been singing songs at church about resurrection and our victory over sin and death. And today, in the 50th day, we celebrate Pentecost. That's Pente cost, you know, yeah, do, the, do the stuff there. Uh, the day when the Spirit of God came to dwell on the followers of Jesus, empowering them and empowering us to reflect the kingdom of God back into the world. But these high seasons of celebration of the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, they're sort of set in a context of a very broken and disturbing world. War rages around the globe. Um, most specifically, our headlines are filled with Russia invading Ukraine as we speak. Reports of gun violence in our nation have become way too common. Racially motivated violence seems baked into the fabric, not only of our nation's history, but of humanity in general. We're still confused as, as a people how to care for the unborn, how to care for those who are born into poverty, how to care for those who are living in the margins of, of statelessness and homelessness and addiction and those struggling with chronic mental health concerns. Like, we keep screwing that up. And within the church, there's perpetual stories of dysfunction, most recently the horrific scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention. And in light of all of this brokenness, there is a great temptation toward despair and doubt and cynicism, and I feel it myself. Where is the resurrection power of Easter in all of this? And where is the fresh wind of the, the Holy Spirit from Pentecost in our world today? Every generation is tempted to say something like, it's never been worse than right now. That's simply not the historical account. Um, and thankfully, Paul's letter to the Philippians, in that letter that we've been studying over the past few weeks, it's written to a church in a world just as corrupt as our own. Corrupt in different ways, maybe, with different methods, but just as corrupt as our own. And Paul, the great apostle of Jesus, is writing from a prison cell to a church in Philippi uh, who are experiencing some of their own sources of suffering and sources of hardship. And in my last sermon, we looked at how Paul drew strength from the prayers of the Philippians and from the promise of the resurrection. That's where he was putting his hope. His faith in the resurrection enabled him to live a life that could, uh, in which he could give himself to the spreading of the gospel of Jesus, even to officials in the Roman Empire, the very people who were oppressing him and the people in Philippi. And he was driven by hope that the word of God could transform individuals and also empires. Now today we're gonna to look at a section in the letter in which Paul turns from writing about his own situation and he addresses the Philippian church. And he addresses them with encouragement about their situation. And in this passage, I've come to see ways that we can be encouraged as well. So I'm going to share that with you. It's just a few verses, and it's Philippians 1, 27 through 30. So 
Paul has just been talking about his hope in the resurrection and the prayers of the people. And he's, now he's convinced that he's going to remain with them and it's going to be good for them. And he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or whether I remain absent, I will hear of you and that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now, on the surface, those four verses, they seem a bit disjointed. Um, That's like the 20th time I've read them this week. It's still like, what? Um, A little bit confusing. And honestly, I'm so tempted just to skip it and get to the next chapter. You guys read chapter two of Philippians? Oh man, it's so glorious, full of theology and some great exhortation and unity and ethics. And why bother with this one? Well, thankfully, thankfully our text is worth exploring. And, um, and it breaks up grammatically into three nice chunks, so we're going we're gonna to do that today. Um, the first theme here is rooted in verse 27, and if you have your Bibles, you can open, open those. I always encourage people to follow along and do your own work. Don't take my word for it, uh, but there we are in verse 27, and it reads something like this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, blah, da, 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 it goes on, okay. Now, on the surface, this sounds a little bit patronizing to me. It's almost like a parent going on a date and saying, like, I, I promise to return, but while I'm gone, only conduct yourselves worthy in a worthy manner as according to our house rules, so that when I get home, the dishes will be done and the laundry will be put away and everyone will be sleeping nicely in their beds. And that's kind of the feel I get when I read Paul's sentence there. It sounds a little patronizing. Now, I have good news for you. That's, that's not what that passage means. And in order to get what Paul is saying, we need to do a little bit of digging in two disciplines. We need to do digging in language, and we need to do some digging in history, okay? And we're going to start with history because I like history better, and I get to preach the sermon, so that's where we're going first, okay? So for if, you, if you were here a few weeks ago, this will be a refresher course for you. If you're just joining in the series, I just wanted us to get our bearings a little bit. So Sophia's going to put the modern map of the Mediterranean on the screen, and you'll notice familiar names, Libya, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, down, down to the south, and you've got the the Fertile Crescent of Iraq, and, and, and then Palestine over on the edge of the Mediterranean there, and if you Lift your eyes north up, up to Greece, and you'll notice the boot of Italy, and doesn't that, you got your bearings, you know where we're at, right in the Mediterranean. And I want you to look at that map, and Sophia's going to put the next slide up, and it's the same geographical place, but it is with the Roman uh, provinces. So these are the names of those borders, as they would be during the first century uh, when Paul is writing this letter. So this is the Roman reckoning, their borders, and their names on the map. Notice that the Roman province of Macedonia, you find Macedonia on the map, that's, that's the part where we would today call Greece, but back then it was called Macedonia. And now we're going to zoom into the third picture, 
and there it is just a little bit closer, and um, it's probably a little small to see, but just below uh, Thrace there is Philippi, above uh, Chaldice, and it's in Macedonia on the right side of Macedonia, okay? Um, and and you, you might remember me saying that it was named after, so Philippi, it was named after Philip the Great, who was Alexander the Great's dad. Um, so it has this long history of being tied to important people. It also has a long history of wealth and national pride uh, because it was a place where gold was found. And so then they built this garrison of army people around there to guard that gold. Um, but that was nothing compared to what would happen to Philippi in around 31 BC. Because in around 31 BC, uh, Octavius, who would later become Caesar Augustus, who you might know that name from the Bible, the, one, the Augustus when Jesus was born, right? Uh, he won a decisive battle known by many historians of what would be the beginning of the Roman Empire. He won that battle just outside of Philippi. And as a way to honor the Philippians and to ensure their loyalty to Rome, Augustus did two things. The first thing that he did is he bestowed on the Philippian people who were Macedonians, he bestowed on the Philippian people citizenship to Rome. They instantly became Roman citizens as a gift from Augustus Caesar. Now, whereas most people had to be born into Roman citizenship or win it through service in the military or at great financial cost, the Philippians enjoyed instant citizenship, which included legal protection, an exemption from the dreaded head tax. So everyone else had to just pay a tax if you were alive in the Roman Empire. And the Philippians were exempt from that. They also had the right to own property and businesses. So basically they were handed a recipe for wealth and prosperity and privilege right away. Now the second thing that Augustus did, ever the practical leader, is that he settled thousands of retired military veterans from the Roman army in Philippi. And, and he did this because it had a dual purpose. One, hey, here's a way I can reward all these people that I owe land to, because that was the reward of 20 to 25 years of Roman service was a plot of land and freedom, and you, there you go. So he gets to pay off that debt by giving them this free land that he just took anyway, and he assured that Philippi, this new city full of Roman citizens that just I mean, there was no, like, onboarding, as they would say in the corporate world, right? How does he know that they would be, uh, f follow Roman customs and worship the Roman gods and goddesses? And how would he know that they'd be loyal to him? I know. I'll put thousands of retired Romy, Roman veterans in the city, and they'll make sure that the culture is Roman. So when the gospel spread in Philippi and the little church was there uh, that was created, uh, the people of that church were Roman citizens who enjoyed some level of privilege relative to the rest of the world. They were very proud of their Roman citizenship. That's the historical background in a nutshell. And you don't have to use your imagination very much to see the parallels between the affluent, privileged Philippi and the affluent and privileged America and the, and the tension that, might, uh, that we might experience between our national citizenship and our commitment to Jesus and citizenship in his kingdom. Don't we bump up against that tension all the time? 
Okay, so that's the, let's, let's hold that over in one section of our heads if we can, the historical reality. Now let's, let's move over to the language portion. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to arrange verse 27, the English words, I'm going to arrange them in the Greek order. So Sophia's going to put that slide up. Okay, um, so basically Greek language is like Yoda. I think Yoda might have spoken Greek. Like basically he always puts like the verbs first and like it's, you know, so here's how it here's how it would literally be translated only worthy of the gospel of christ conduct yourselves so that whether i come and see you or whether i don't i will hear and and on it goes okay so you can see that emphasis of worthy of the gospel of christ conduct yourselves okay so that's like that's the emphasis there but there's more to it than that i'm going to show you this right now so sophia's going to go to the next slide okay so this conduct yourselves This is where I get hung up, and this is where it sounds patronizing. Only conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. In Greek, there is one word that is translated as conduct yourself. So it looks like two words in English. It's one word, and you might pronounce it like polytueste. Okay, you can try and say that. Polytueste, polytueste. Give it a try. Polytueste. Yes, and, and, and that word, you can see the root in the beginning, the poly, the P-O-L-I. Um, does that remind you of anything? Um, in Greek, the word polis means city, and that's from where we get the word politics or policy that, that governs our politics, okay? Uh, and, and so what this word better translated, this is from Gordon Fee, uh, to take an active part in the affairs of the polis, of the city, to take an active role, an active part in the affairs of the city. Okay? Not just be a citizen of Rome, in other words, but to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Only conduct yourselves in the affairs of the city, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Only conduct yourselves as a citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel. And when we merge the historical aspect of intense nationalism in Philippi with the linguistic aspect of Paul calling the Philippian church to live as citizens, we realize that he's calling them to live as citizens for good, for the good of the land, for the good of people, for the good of those around them. Hundreds of years earlier, before Paul wrote this letter or before Paul was alive, the Israelites were captives in Babylon. They were persecuted, oppressed, they were ripped from their homeland and pulled over to Babylon, and they were under constant temptation to forget their allegiance to God and to adopt the gods and goddesses and cultural practices of the Babylonians. And what did God tell them to do through the prophet Jeremiah? He did not tell them to, well, to, to form little enclaves and to hide themselves from society. Um, he didn't tell them to create your own Jewish publishing company and your own Jewish Hollywood and your own Jewish little versions of the Babylonian things. Th- this is what he says to do through the prophet Jeremiah. He tells them two things. First, he tells them to build houses and to plant gardens and to raise families And to do those things to be a blessing to the Babylonians. He told them to be good citizens. 
to make a positive impact rather than becoming a negative influence. Rather than hide behind the walls of their homes and their places of worship, they were to be sent out to work for justice and beauty and for the good of their Babylonian neighbors. The second thing is that God promised them that even though he wanted them to invest wholeheartedly, maybe for generations and generations in this foreign land of Babylon, even though he told them to do that, that that would not be the end of their story. There would come a time when God's kingdom would displace every earthly kingdom and make all things new. Now, Paul, who let's not forget, he was a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures, including Jeremiah. He seems to be saying something very similar to the church in Philippi. In the same way, we are living in a day and age when our nation appears to be one of the most powerful, not only in our current historical situation, but one of the most powerful nations to ever be on the face of the earth. In terms of just gross capital and military might and all of this kind of stuff, it's it's like the apex. And we who claim to follow Jesus in America have incredible privilege and power uh, by the nature of our citizenship in this country. And yet we are called to be first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, some followers of Jesus had, have gone to, to two extremes. This is an overgeneralization, but it, two extremes, and we can find, kind of find ourselves somewhere on the spectrum. Some have withdrawn from culture and society, doing their best to avoid mixing with people who don't also follow Jesus. And the, the obvious problem with that stance is that you completely fail to be a blessing to anyone but yourself. Certainly the Apostle Paul, who risked his life trying to share the gospel with, with pagans, would not recognize a church that hid behind its walls all the time and only did things with its own people. That would be quite foreign to Paul or to Jesus or to the prophets. On the other extreme are those trying to turn America into a place that reflects the values of the gospel. And the problem with that stance, of course, is that we're trying to make people who don't follow Jesus follow the rules that Jesus has, which doesn't seem genuine at all. And in the midst of a broken and unjust world, the call is for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we have voice, to be the squeaky wheel in the machine of violence and exploitation and corruption, to constantly be saying, that ain't right. And here's why. And here's how we want to live differently. You know, I see that happening in so many ways, even in our modest congregation. You know, from those, there's those of you out there who have had the hopeful audacity to, to raise a family in this setting. I know, I know more than a handful of people in my life who have just given up on having kids because of the brokenness of the world. There's real despair, real thoughtfulness about, you know, I'm not sure I want to bring anyone up in this world. But you who are parenting kids after Jesus is a form of hopeful resistance, and I bless you in that. And I see, I see you working as teachers, ministering not only to minds, but to the futures of human beings, many of whom are crushed under the weight of the pandemic and broken homes and abuses that you hear about and that you hold in your heart. 
and you minister to kids and to coworkers in the school system. I love that. I see many of you working in healthcare, serving the most vulnerable of our population, literally working for healing of, of emotions and minds and bodies. It's amazing. I see those of you working in tech and in industry and in the trades and in engineering and publishing and civil servitude or policing and transportation and fire, all of it working for the good of the order, of the polis, of the city. And I see you leveraging your retirement years to serve aging parents and busy children and loving your neighbors. Political citizenship is always a shifting and somewhat arbitrary reality. I can't imagine in the Roman, uh, a Roman citizen in the first century, except for the most insightful Roman citizen, thinking, this isn't gonna, you know, this is gonna last forever, right? Like, it's the best thing. We're the most powerful. We've got running water. Some of us even have some plumbing. Uh, I mean, the, the Romans didn't see it coming. Uh, the Athenians thought that their thing was gonna last forever, and so may many Americans. But give it enough time and enough human failure, and that ensures that no human kingdom lasts forever. And what the scriptures continually say is that God's kingdom does last forever. And so when you're a, a citizen of God's kingdom, you're a citizen for good, like forever. And from that foundation of security, then you can be a citizen that works for good, for the good of other people. Leads us to our second theme that I see in this little passage, and that is tenacity in the spirit. Tenacity in the spirit. Being a good citizen, <laughs> it's not. It's not easy. Life is hard enough. I mean, just regular life, like not trying to follow Jesus' life, but just regular life is hard enough. Our souls are easily, easily crushed from natural circumstances, just the roll of the dice, our, our genetics, our, our just circumstances. It, it makes life hard enough. But the other part of the truth is that if we truly live for good, not everyone is going to like it. Not everyone wants to pull in the same direction, and that's going to mean opposition. Paul says that whether he's able to come to Philippi in person or not, he hopes to hear that the church has been steadfast, tenaciously standing firm in the power of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. So it is a Pentecost sermon. It's all about the Spirit. You can't talk about Paul without talking about the Spirit. He's just so taken with the work of the Spirit. This word for striving, standing firm in the Greek, it's, a, it's athleto. Uh, so, of course, we get athlete, right? Where we get athletics. A and it's, that verb means to work together with vigor and diligence for a common cause, like a team would. And on this Pentecost, let us remember that if you have been baptized into Christ, then the Spirit of Christ is in you. And we need the work of God's Spirit, not only as individual people, but as the church as a whole. We strive together to be citizens for good of the kingdom who live for the good of our neighbors. And we need each other for that. Like, that's not a lone ranger job. I don't care how filled with the Spirit you might be. We need each other. In three days from now, on Wednesday evening, there's going to be a hearing about the Lighthouse Mission uh, and their plans to rebuild their facility right on their own property at 910 Holly. And this new proposal is motivated from top to bottom with gospel intent, trying to be 
a good neighbor for the kingdom in our community. It aims to provide goods or services to a, our growing homeless population with room for a diverse range of guests. And the mission has been a source of good and blessing in the name of Christ right in our community for decades. I don't think anyone in our city does it better, like ministering to the homeless population. But there is and there will be resistance on Wednesday. Resistance from neighbors who mean really well. Resistance from people who mean really well, who disagree with the philosophy of the mission. And there's going to be spiritual resistance. This is just a reality that we deal with. And I'm going to be at that hearing virtually, and I encourage you as spirit-bearing followers of Jesus, if that's who you identify as, that I encourage you to pray for favor for the mission to continue this work of Christ. The mission is not a lone entity. It's part of a greater work of the church. And so let's stand together in tenacity of the Spirit. That's a simple application of praying for favor. At the local church level, let's pray for one another. Let's pray for the Spirit of God to empower us and to encourage us and to give us strength to live tenaciously, not just for our own benefit or for our own good, but for the good of our neighbors and for the good of the world. That's what we're supposed to be about. And finally, Paul brings this little section of the letter um, home by referencing the theme of suffering. That's the third theme I see in this little passage. And he's not talking about suffering in general. There's enough of that, and there's talk about suffering in general and what to do with that in other parts of the Bible. But the suffering Paul's talking about here is the suffering that we might encounter when we follow Jesus. It's following Jesus' suffering. Something Paul was well acquainted with since he's literally writing this letter from a prison cell. And he'd been beaten several times, survived multiple assassination attempts, and eventually Paul would be executed by the Roman Empire at a different imprisonment at a different time in his life. So this guy knows something about suffering for Christ. Now we, we kind of touched on this idea in the last section, but in brief, when we begin to live as good citizens of God's kingdom, it's not always going to be well-received. And the problem with the gospel is that it confronts the human heart. It confronts my human heart, and if you're listening to the things that Jesus says and that Paul is interpreting, uh, it's going to confront your human heart as well. And let me tell you something, and you probably know this to be true for yourself, but when the heart feels a little bit convicted, oh man, it's like an animal trapped in a corner, and I want to fight with every rationalization and excuse, and I want to I make it so that I, I don't need to conform if I don't feel like conforming. I want to make it that I don't need to change unless I feel like I want to change. And that's something that the gospel does. It confronts us with our stuff. And so we work, for example, to settle refugees. That sounds amazing. What could be better? But not everybody's pleased about settling refugees. Racism and politics and fear-mongering, all of these sources of resistance push back against the work of the gospel. 
Or if we work to reform laws that allow weapons, assault weapons in schools, powerful lobbies and people with deep affinities may work to sabotage that process. That's just a reality. And now you're saying, oh, he's getting political. Well, blame it on Paul. He's talking about the polis, good citizens in our kingdom. I'm not advocating for a side. I'm just saying, notice what happens in our anxiety when we start talking about these things. Because they matter. They matter to the citizens. They matter to God. If we advocate for the rights of the unborn, if we advocate for the rights of those who are born that we don't take good care of, or those born with mental or physical complications, we draw the ire and the venom of other people, right? What Paul seems to be saying is that this sort of resistance that causes suffering is to be expected. It's normal. And when we suffer for doing the work of Christ, what he's saying is that we share in the um, solidarity, the at-oneness with Christ, And when we share in the solidarity of Christ in his suffering, we share in the solidarity of Christ in his resurrection and his defeat and death. And that is a wonderful, wonderful promise. So let us live as citizens for good. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to empower us and embolden us to lay our lives down for the good of other people. And let us stand with tenacity and endurance knowing that nothing we do for good in God's kingdom will be in vain. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, as I even say these things that I have now rehearsed this week and studied, I still feel the resistance, the fear, and I pray for your empowerment on me and and the church, not just this church, but the church around the world. I pray for that spirit of tenacity and wisdom, and moderation, and I pray for uh, the boldness to do what it is we're supposed to do, and the wisdom to know how to do that, and how to do it tactfully, and well, and wisely in the system in which you've put us. Help us to resist the temptation to take the easy way, whether that's doing nothing, or whether that's doing something that looks significant, but through the channels of the world of aligning ourselves with with the powers and principalities, with aligning ourselves with certain political movements. Help us to resist that and to follow you, Holy Spirit, as you lead us and guide us. And I pray for continued favor on this congregation in the lettered streets, Lord, that you would help us to continue to have a good track record of being good citizens, of being for the people that live here and work here, Lord, help us to be known as your hands and feet who are for people and their flourishing and their goodness. Thank you. That'd be awesome. (laughs) Amen.